Consider this, 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry, you're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth, acquisitions, and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for a business transition newsletter at successionstories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Ryan Dusick is the founding drummer of Maroon 5, one of the world's most popular bands. In the 90s, Ryan and his high school buddies, Adam Levine and Jesse Carmichael, dreamt about making it big, and eventually they did. Ryan joined me on Succession Stories to talk about his book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Having this time with Ryan was incredible. He talked with an unfiltered candor and sincerity about how making it to the top sent him to the bottom. Multiple hits, two Grammy Awards, and 20 million albums sold later, Ryan found himself suffering and without direction as his career as a performer ended just as it was taking off. He left the band he co-founded after suffering from a breakdown on the Songs About Jane tour in 2005. After a decade, his perspective changed when he decided to pursue a path of recovery and a new life full of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Ryan earned his master's degree in clinical psychology and became a marriage and family therapist. Now working as a mental health professional, Ryan is spreading the message that recovery is possible and some astounding things can come with it. When you spend years architecting your life around a goal and suddenly it's gone, it's understandable that you may face an identity crisis and depression. Accepting the reinvention process enabled Ryan to let go of the past and embrace a new future. I hope that you enjoy this special What's Next succession story about exit and recovery with Ryan Dusick. Ryan, welcome to Succession Stories. Congratulations on publishing your memoir, Harder to Breathe. I'm excited to be with you today and learn more about your story. Thank you so much for having me on, Lori. You're in a special room in your house. There's drum kits all around you. Describe your collection in case people aren't watching us on YouTube. Well, this room has been, it was kind of a labor of love to build. When I moved out to the San Fernando Valley, I had this, this fantasy of having this room where I had all of the gear I've ever collected over the years in one space. It's a long journey, you know, since I was 12 years old, I started playing the drums and I actually, my very first drum kit is behind me back in that corner, <laughs> uh, that, that blue kind of sparkly looking 1960s jazz kit was the first kit that my parents gave me for Christmas when I was 12. I didn't play that that one for very long because I was, you know, this was the late 80s and it was the time of uh, the hair bands and I wanted a big rock kit with symbols over my head. And so I, I graduated pretty quickly to that style of drum kit. But I, since then, you know, being in a band for 12 years, 
and going from the garage all the way up to the biggest stages, there were a lot of opportunities to collect a lot of different gear. And there were some things I lost along the way, but most of the things that I've, I've gotten is in this room, not just drums, you know, guitars and amps and basses and other, other things. Yeah, it's super cool. And I love that you've kept your first drum set. And I, if I recall the year, it was 1989. And if that's correct, that was the year that I was a senior in high school. So just to give everybody kind of a level set for the Gen Xers listening in, and we can put ourselves back in that time zone. You covered a lot in your book. You covered a lot, the highs, the lows of your experience in a really honest way. And it's been more than two decades since Maroon 5's amazing album, acclaimed album, Songs About Jane, was released. Were you nervous for your former bandmates to read the manuscript? Hmm. Uh, yes and no. I, I think I, I certainly wanted their approval and I wanted them to to like what I had done. I was very proud of of the the book that I had written. And, you know, it'd be nice to have their support, of course, as well, going out into the world and trying to promote the thing. But at the same time, you know, I, I yeah, I felt very confident. I felt like I had done as much work as I possibly could to be as honest and balanced and fair in the representation of everything that happened over over a decade and all the relationships involved. Even in moments when I was critical or, or presenting things that might not be entirely flattering, I was very mindful to as a as a therapist now, you know, to to look at <laughs> right. to look at the system and to look at uh, you know, there's three sides to every story and to try to really be self-aware in how I was um, representing something because there was no intent to harm anyone or to, you know, sling mud, so to speak. So so I I felt really confident going to them and saying, "Here is the story as I lived it, as honestly as I could tell it." but just a little nervous to see how that would respond. But they responded yeah. very well. Yeah, and they wrote endorsements for your book. You're all of your former bandmates, as well as talented singer-songwriter Sour Bareilles and Adam Levine wrote the forward. So I just want to let the audience know, in case they haven't read your book, but they should read it because it's an amazing book that it is absolutely you know with the support of your former bandmates. And let's go back, let's rewind. Take me back to your early years, because this is really where everything starts, growing up in L.A. Yeah, well, I grew up in L.A. You know, I was born in 1977, so I was a, a, a child of the 1980s, really. This was the era of MTV, and it was the era in L.A., you know, it was an interesting time to grow up because it was the 80s, it was the Reagan era, and there was all the opulence of Beverly Hills that was very close to where I grew up. And I played in Beverly Hills Little League and AYSO. But then there was also in the same city, like the worst epidemic of, you know, the crack epidemic and poverty in the inner city and gang life and all that stuff. So um, growing up somewhere in between those two worlds, I I kind of saw myself pretty early on as a product of a, a lot of intersections, which I, I talk about in the book. You know, I was the child of a Mexican-born mother and an L.A.-born Jewish father. So a bit of an intersection there in terms of cultures and background. And, and then my brother and I growing up where we did, we were exposed to a lot of different kinds of music and a lot of different ways of thinking. And we went to a public elementary school that had kids from all different sides of the city. It was, it was uh, very diverse and different ethnic backgrounds. And so I, I look at my, my childhood in LA being a really rich sort of tapestry of a lot of different influences that uh, I'm, I'm grateful for. 
I didn't know any different at the time, but looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that it informed the way that I see the world as an adult. And then just musically speaking, you know, there was a, there were a lot of different influences in our early love of music. And my older brother, Josh took up the electric guitar when he was about 14, you know, classic rock and that era of eighties rock were, were big influences on me when I started playing the drums at 12. And so, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was playing in um, the school band. I was playing in my older brother's band and I was, I had a passion for, for music, which was at that point sort of supplanting my first pat passion, which was baseball and, um, and the Los Angeles Dodgers thinking someday I would be pitching for them. And that was your dream, <laughs> wasn't it? To be on the LA Dodgers. Yeah. From the time, I mean, we were really lucky in the eighties in LA with the sports teams we had, we had magic Johnson and the Showtime Lakers and we had Fernando Valenzuela and Oral Hershiser of the Dodgers, great pitchers to look up to for me. And that was my love, you know, was, was pitching. And, and I really thought that was at age 12, I was sure I was going to be pitching for the Dodgers someday. And I was pretty good. I was a pretty good pitcher. <laughs> you smoked it. There's a photo of you in the book and I don't know, you must've been double jointed or something. Cause the way you were, your right-handed pitcher, right. And the way your arm was sort of bent back and you were doing a tremendous lunge. So it must've been your fastball or curveball. I don't know what you were throwing. It was a really cool photo. Yeah, that's when you see that paused like that, uh, you see how much torque is on your arm when you're throwing a fastball like that, right? Yeah, I think that was like an all-star tournament out in Malibu when I was 12. And you look at that picture and you think, uh, that's not a 12-year-old kid. That's going to no. be <laughs> an adult, right? <laughs> so well, you, yeah. you do touch on it in the book. You talk about the successes of your early baseball career and, and your your dreams for being on the Dodgers. But then something happened where you started to get some anxiety on the mound. Do you want to talk about that? I've, you know, I've done a lot of therapy looking back at that point in my life and realizing that uh, the first inklings of some issues I might have had in terms of anxiety and mental health might have started around baseball and my relationship to baseball because I was a, you know, an overachiever as a kid, did well in most things, and baseball was my, was my first passion and the place where I felt most comfortable in my own skin and powerful and you know, pitching in, in all-star tournaments and, and feeling like I was really sort of the master of my domain when I was on the mound. I broke my hand when I was 13, and it was right at the end of my first season pitching for my high school. And it was really unfortunate because I, I wasn't able to pitch in the postseason, the playoffs and all that stuff. But then there was a senior league tournament that started right after that. And I got my cast off and I think started pitching a little too fast, too quickly after after an injury. You know, I didn't really, I didn't go do any physical therapy or anything. I just kind of picked up the ball and started throwing again. And there was this moment where I was pitching at 13 in the senior league tournament. And we were in some game where it was a seven inning game. And I'd been pitching six innings already. And we were winning like 13 to one or something. And I started having pain in my elbow. And I remember for the first time in my life, I wasn't particularly religious, but I was I was in the dugout praying to God and, and saying, just let me get through this game or let this pain, you know, sort of subside and, and I won't ask for anything <laughs> ever again. And I, I think at that moment, I just, you know, I could give you the whole history in terms of how I've psychoanalyzed myself, but I just didn't really want to, I didn't want to let anyone down. I felt like it was my responsibility to carry that team and do what I had been doing for the last few years, that the, the place that I had felt most powerful and most confident 
Um, and I felt that first tinge of feeling vulnerable and I didn't like it. And that carried me forward for the next couple of years, trying to pitch for the varsity team. I just didn't have the, I had a lot of injuries and I didn't have the same confidence because I was tr constantly trying to play through injuries or come back from injuries. And it was very frustrating. And I think it really kind of messed with my head in terms of my confidence. And I think I, every time I would try to come back from injury, there was a little bit more of a diminishment in terms of how I was able to tap into that place that I felt so in charge at 12, that by the time I was about 15, it just wasn't fun anymore. And I, I just felt like the ball wasn't coming out of my hand the same way. The experience of being on a team and playing baseball didn't have the same joy and passion and purpose that it once had. And so everything that I had found a lot of meaning in was kind of missing at that point. And I thankfully had music at that point in my life to, to sort of buoy me because I was feeling very disillusioned. I was feeling the pangs of teenage angst at that point. Yeah, and exacerbated by the injuries in baseball. It's tough enough to be a teenager, right? Yeah, I think it's a moment in your life for most teenagers, really for all teenagers, where you're questioning things for the first time and you're trying to figure out who you are in the world, what your values are, what you care, really care about, where you stand and who you're going to be as an adult. Not that you have enough self-awareness at that age to know that that's what's going on, but that's what the feeling is. It's sort of like pushing off of things and trying to find your bearings, like who am I? And I was certainly doing that. And fortunately, it was in the early 90s at this point, and it was the era of grunge rock and the Seattle alternative scene. And I was kind of in that moody teenager mode already. And then out comes Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell. And, you know, these guys that were just such an awesome intersection of both powerful in what they did, but also sort of wounded and vulnerable in the things that they were talking about and the way that they were expressing their emotion. And so I really related to that. It was for me, having felt that, that, that aggression and that power as an athlete, but also just as a young man growing into myself, but then also feeling that vulnerability and being a sensitive kid and, and not feeling very comfortable yet with that sensitive side of me, the heavy music of that era was really a nice thing to a nice place to put all of that energy, all of that confusion <laughs> and angst that came with that, that time in, in your life in general, but that time for me in particular, where I was going through that transition from something that felt like an identity to me, to now, I don't know what my identity is. And then you found it, you got introduced to your bandmates when you were, what, 15 years old? Well, yeah, Adam was uh, sort of an extended family friend, Adam Levine. Growing up, he, he was a couple grades below me. And so uh, when I would see him at family events and things, uh, he just seemed like a, an annoying little brother to me. <laughs> he was kind yeah. of uh, kind of rambunctious, a, a, a hyperactive kid and um, ADHD, uh, as we have come to understand it. And I saw myself as this, you know, more grown up. <laughs> yes, two years <laughs> two older, very sophisticated. Yeah. At that age, you know, you think. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, but it wasn't until we were in high school, I had played a little bit of music with him when we were in middle school and that didn't really go anywhere. But when I was in high school and my older brother had gone off to college and the guys that I was playing in the school band with were all kind of graduating and leaving me, I was looking for younger blood to, to start up with. And then I remembered my old buddy, Adam Levine. 
I realized, you know, I knew he had been playing some some guitar, but I didn't know how good he was. And then I saw him perform one night at the Troubadour with another band, a band in which he was just sort of the afterthought. He was just a rhythm guitarist. But they invited him up to center stage for the last song to sing lead vocals. And that was the moment when I was like, oh, OK, uh, everything's going to be OK. <laughs> everything's going to be OK. I think yeah, I and then it really band. took off from there. You had a couple other bandmates at that time, Jesse Carmichael and Mickey Madden, right? There were the four of you. Yeah, Jesse and Mickey were friends of Adams from middle school when I was at the high school already. And so when they were freshmen and I sort of had that coming back together with Adam, he introduced me to Jesse and Mickey and he had been playing in some bands with them. I just kind of wanted to steal Adam for myself and start a new band. He would be the singer and I would we'd find a, a good bass player and, and guitarist to to join me for the, the rhythm section. But he had other plans because Jesse was his best friend at that point. He'd been playing with Mickey for a couple of years also. I was reluctant because I had been playing with older players that were more experienced and these kids were really novices. But I had to admit when we when we had one fateful day in the school orchestra room in 1994, I guess it was, we were playing a Rage Against the Machine song <laughs> and it just clicked. I mean, there was just a, a sort of chemistry between the original four members that regardless of the level of experience felt really magical. It just felt like we were really on the same page and it came together in a sort of synergistic way where the, the you know, the, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. And from that day forward, there was new purpose in my life. You know, there was this collaboration, there was this new family that we were forming and we were like a little, you know, band of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the best-selling book, The Business Transition Handbook, how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Business owners will learn how to navigate the emotional and practical nature of the transition process to avoid exit regrets. It's crucial to start planning when time is on your side so you don't leave money or your happiness on the table. Reading this book, you'll have Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guiding you along the way. To download a free copy, head to thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com that's the business transition handbook.com today. Well, you you guys were in high school, you know, let's put ourselves back in time. You didn't know where your future was headed. You just knew that these were musically talented people that you wanted to be with and that you together were creating something fun and exciting and special. And then it took off from there. But of course, in the beginning, you didn't know where it was headed. Yeah, it was entirely driven by passion at first and just our love of the music that we were emulating. And the early sound was very much that grunge rock. You know, we were, Adam and Jesse were absolutely obsessed with Pearl Jam and they had all of their pictures all over their, their bedroom walls. Instead of, you know, the, the normal teenage boy thing with, with the sexy girls in their bikinis, they had Pearl Jam, you know, Eddie, <laughs> and Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> and Eddie Vedder Jeff. just looking down at them. Exactly. <laughs> and that's and awesome. You were older, so you had the car and you had more a little more maturity. So you were assuming a role with the band. You were in the band, of course, you were the drummer, but then you were taking on additional responsibilities like managing and bookings and and things like that. In in some ways, you were also helping manage the brand identity, were you not? 
Yeah, it was a combination of me being the oldest and having the car, but also being sort of the uh, type A personality in the group. Um, you know, like I said, Adam was Adam was a very talented kid and a very charismatic, charming kid, uh, but but scatterbrained, you know, just by nature, really not very organized. And I I was by nature sort of OCD and highly organized and and motivated to be the one that was on top of things. And so, yeah, I was the one that was made sure that we had a demo tape and I was taking it around town to all the the uh, the Hollywood clubs, the whiskey, the Roxy and the Troubadour and and meeting with the club bookers and and negotiating a contract to to buy a certain amount of tickets and sell them. And then I was responsible for going around town and selling these tickets to our friends and family and and taking down a mailing list in those days. And so, yeah, I, you know, at 16 years old hustling around, driving in, you know, my hand-me-down Jeep Wagoneer around town. <laughs> I was a, certainly kind of the entrepreneur, I guess, of the group, the sort of brand yeah. manager, yeah. Yeah, you were. And the name of the band, the first name, Cara's Flowers, has a funny story to it. You want to tell that little story? Yeah, so I was, weirdly enough, as much as I had been confident as a, a pitcher and, and behind the drums now and... Um, and I was, the, you know, hustling in that way. Uh, I was very shy with girls. I, I was you know, an introvert by nature, but then with girls in particular, I just I hadn't yet figured out how to talk to women at 16. And uh, and Adam had that charm. You know, as even as I think as a middle schooler, he he was he just had that charm with the ladies, even with a face full of acne. You know, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> and and he had a couple of friends that were cute girls in there in the freshman class, and I was a junior. And uh, and so I was like, that was an added reason to be friends with Adam. It was like, maybe he could introduce me to some of the cute. The freshmen. entourage was there. <laughs> <laughs> so the night that we formed the band, um, Adam and Jesse and I went out to a show at the, the Troubadour. And we decided we were forming this band. And, and we ended up back in, in my, my bedroom at my parents' house. Um, and we wrote a couple, you know, riffs and things. And we were talking about how great this band's going to be. And. Uh, and Adam being uh, the precocious uh, young man that he was said, you know, this night isn't over. We need to do something to to put an exclamation point on the night we formed the band. And so after midnight, when my parents were asleep, we we snuck out and uh, put my my Jeep Wagoneer in neutral and rolled it onto the street and headed off into the Hollywood Hills uh, to find his friend Kara's house. Kara uh, was a friend of his that I thought was cute. And uh, and it was her birthday the next day. And so we thought we're going to go wish her a happy birthday after midnight. Uh, the thing with Adam's, you know, scatterbrained uh, <laughs> sort of a, a mentality, he did, he neglected to tell us that he didn't know exactly where she lived. He didn't know what street it was. He just knew somewhere in the vicinity of the Hollywood Hills above the Whiskey of Go-Go. So we drove around for an hour and couldn't find it. We had to sneak back into my parents' house to get the school roster to find her address. Still couldn't find it, so we had to scrounge up a Thomas guide in those days. This was long before we had, you know, a map on our phone. Uh, and it was like four in the morning. We're sitting at a, the Norms on La Cienega Boulevard and contemplating, you know, just packing it in. And then there's a guy selling flowers walking down the street at like four in the morning on, on La Cienega Boulevard. And we said, it's fate. You know, we have to buy some flowers and we have to find her house and deliver it to <laughs> for her birthday. We have to give her these flowers. So as fate would have it, we actually, as the sun is coming up, pulled onto her street and found her house. 
and crept up to her bedroom window and knocked on it. And she came to the window and was very confused and then, you know, very flattered and, and was absolutely like, you know, blushing. Um, I was probably blushing too. Cause I, you know, I was so nervous to be doing this at all, but uh, we, you know, we, we snuck back into my parents' house and we said, we, we have to name the band Cara's flowers to commemorate this epic journey. That was as much a bonding thing for us, I think as, as it was anything else. And Cara's Flowers, that name stuck for about eight years. And you had an album. You cut an album. How did that album do to give us kind of the quick story around, around that part of the journey? Well, we, we, uh, we were very precocious, but, you know, um, naive and green in, in some ways. Um, but we started getting attention within a year or two of being a band. And at, when Adam started to find his voice as a, as a songwriter, uh, lyrically, not yet, but as a, in terms of melody, um, he was he was definitely beyond his years. And Jesse as well was really growing into uh, the two of them became sort of a songwriting duo, so much so that we were writing songs that caught the ear of major record labels. And we got eventually uh, signed to Reprise Records, uh, which was part of Warner Brothers and uh, and recorded an album in 96 that came out in 97. Uh, and we went on the road for the first time when I was 19. I had I would done a couple of years at UCLA at that point, but um, pretty much dropped out of that point to make the record and go on the road. And we had stars in our eyes. You know, they told us we were going to be the next Pearl Jam or the next Weezer at that point. We were emulating Weezer because this was now the the mid to late 90s. Um, Weezer and Green Day. And then, um, you know, we went out onto the road thinking we were, that it was just a, a fait accompli. The record would come out, it'd be a, a hit, and we'd be stars. Didn't work out that way. Um, it didn't take off the way it did for a number of reasons. The timing wasn't right. The lyrics weren't quite there yet. And we kind of came home with our tails between our legs, um, realizing that it uh, it wasn't so easy, even when you had the big record label and the big manager and all those things. Um Every the planets still have to align for you to break through, and it just didn't happen that time. So we ended up really having to go back to the drawing board after that. After having had you know big label, big manager, big everything, agent, attorney, <laughs> uh, we now had nothing again. We were back to square one, and and with me as the manager, hustling around and booking gigs around town, and I was back at UCLA handing out flyers and uh, and taking our demo tape around and. Um, and it was back to the drawing board, and um, and so I, I kind of fell back into that role of the 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 hustler, uh, and but it was a good time for us because we we at first it was tough. We had to deal with that loss and and not knowing if we were going to go on. I know Adam in particular was really kind of distraught over um, having had that uh, that disappointment. Um, but when we came back together, when we figured out that we did want to go on. Um, even even after a period of sort of splintering and not knowing if we were going to be able to work together, we somehow came back together on the same page with the, with a new with new inspiration. Like we were all listening to for a while there different kinds of music, and then all of a sudden listening to the same kind of music again and finding inspiration now in more groove based music, more R and B and hip hop and classic soul and. We were all listening to Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and uh, Michael Jackson and Prince and more contemporary hip hop and R&B. And, uh, and so there was a sort of a renaissance that happened in, in my life, as well as in the life of the band, 
in the late 90s to early 2000s. Um, and that's when we started writing the songs that became the first Maroon 5 album. It's amazing, as you've laid it out in the book, and I, I went back and I listened to the album that we're talking about with Cars, Flowers, and then listened to Harder to Breathe and all the songs on Songs About Jane. And they really are quite different. So to hear you yeah. explaining it in the book is one thing, but I encourage everyone, go back and listen to these albums because I think it helps bring the story to life. There's just one thing I wanna rewind on real quick before we, before we transition and talk about Maroon 5. The business side of this is really interesting for those of us that are not in the record business to just get a glimpse into how does this all work? And in the book, you talked about when Reprise decided to drop you from the label. And that stung, I'm sure. And they paid all of you, I guess they broke the contract. So they paid all of you at that time, $30,000 per band member, which I did the math. And by the way, today's dollars would be more than $50,000 each, <laughs> but still it wasn't a huge number. And you said you felt like they dropped you like trash. I was thinking about it in terms of venture capital firms and venture capital firms, they place a lot of bets. And the way their math works is that They'll spend money, you know, they'll invest. They make these initial investments, maybe some follow-on. And if one or two of these companies make it big, it usually is enough to get a good ROI in the portfolio. And when you were talking about the record business and these older, you know, these older days, to me, there was a parallel description where they were willing to spend a million dollars on you. They were signing 10 acts a year or however many it was, and they were going to make one or two on the made it big. And so when you didn't make it big with the album sales, they cut you. So I, I don't know if that resonates, but for those folks listening who have been through startups, perhaps you can think of at that time, your band was a startup. It was. And let me just say that I, you know, we were one of the lucky ones in terms of how the, the, the contract that we were able to negotiate um, we had really good representation and the fact that we got an advance and then we got a payout when we got dropped um, was not the norm, I don't think. I think we, we actually fared pretty well given, um, you know, the, that that whole story. The, the sink or swim model is, is what they used to call it. You know, basically the, the record labels in the heyday, I think probably like 70s to the 90s of big corporate rock uh, they would sign, yeah, 10 acts a year and spend a million dollars on each of them. And one of them would sell 20 million albums and they would make a ton of money and they would take all those other nine as, as a loss. Um, and so that was the model of business. And never mind the bands that, you know, were basically signed to a record label for about a year. They made an album and put their whole heart and soul in, into it. And at the end of that year, if the thing hadn't taken off, it was over. I mean, your career was essentially over. We were also very lucky that we had that experience as teenagers. So we had another go round before it would have really been over for us. If we had been in our 20s when that happened, that might have been it for us. It might have been the end of our career. Yeah, you bounced back. There was a time you talked about in the book when Adam and Jesse moved to New York. They went to college for a bit and I think they were pursuing their musical career Adam started to work on a television show that some people might remember called Judging Amy. And that's when he started to take some notes and write some song lyrics. And he was inspired by a high school girlfriend named Jane. <laughs> and it goes from there. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if it was, I don't think she was a high school girlfriend, but she was, a, she, she, strangely enough, Jane was a friend of my girlfriend at the time, Taryn. Uh, but 
she wasn't introduced to Adam through Taryn. It was like a small world thing. He met her at, through someone else. Uh, but he was, yeah, he was in his late teens, early 20s, I think, when he started dating Jane. And it was this sort of tumultuous on-again, off-again relationship. She went to school in, in New York at NYU. And every time she would leave town, it was like, you know, the song, This Love. This Love has taken its toll on me, you know. Uh, and so there was there were some songs that were very ten tender, very sweet, almost sappy love songs about that relationship early on. And then there were these very tumultuous ones. And it, and and those ones intersected with that that time when we were starting to write songs with a bluesier feel, you know, a sultrier feel that had a sort of uh, the, the, the combination of sexuality um, and sort of uh, angst and 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 the discomfort and and pain of a heartbreak right because we'd been through the heartbreak of losing our our first record deal so adam had that life experience to draw from he'd had this tumultuous relationship we now you know we're working on our second record deal and everything all the pressure that went with that and so there was a, a kind of a nice brew there to put together different elements of inspiration and passion and love but then also this darker element of disappointment and heartbreak and pain. And I think that was a, a nice kind of toxic stew <laughs> for the songs that became songs about Jane. You talked about the name Maroon 5 and that there's a story behind it, but you're not allowed to share. So I'll just check in. If you <laughs> want to share it today, you're more than welcome. Well, I would, I'll tell you this much. It's probably not as exciting a story as most people imagine. And um, part of the reason why we don't talk about it is for that reason, because if you don't talk about it, then it builds a bigger <laughs> sort of right. mystique, right? The mystique is still there. Yeah. So you, you added James Valentine. So now you are five. Yes. And in the book, you talked about the process, the recording process. And you, you were just alluding to it a second ago, that there was a brew, there was a brew, there was a storm. And any of us who have worked in organizations know it doesn't always go swimmingly, right? There's a normative description of forming, storming, norming, and performing. And as I was reading your book, I just kept thinking about that framework because that happened to you. you as you were recording the album, here you are type A control freak. There probably was one or two others. And I think you talked about <laughs> the micromanagement that was happening and that there was drum tracking by committee. I thought that was a really funny phrase. Maybe you could just give a little bit of a description of that. Yeah. You know, when we first started recording in the nineties, uh, this, it was reel to reel tape and we didn't even record to what you'd call a click track uh, or a, a metronome. You would just press record and start playing. And you did, you know, overdubbing, you did, you tracked the guitars and vocals and stuff separately, but essentially you're just trying to get a good performance the way that you play it live. Uh, maybe a little tighter, a little bit more, uh, you do it enough times to get as good a performance as you can. And then you build on top of that framework. But now we were in the era of, uh, well, the hip hop style of production, which was much more, you know, drum machines and doing things um, to a grid you know, where you had a click track. And if you had live elements, you had to fit it all onto that grid in order for it to all come together with whatever programming you're doing. And you're doing it all within an, a, a digital framework now, Pro Tools, which was the software that was becoming the, 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 the industry standard as opposed to the reel-to-reel -reel tape. And on top of that, um, you know, and being influenced by that style of music, Adam was doing a lot of the demos for Songs About Jane when he was writing songs with his buddy, Sam Farrar, who was um, from a band called Phantom Planet, which was a, a rival band of ours. 
Um, and Sam was a budding producer and he had his own rig in his garage where he was doing these demos that you, it was a lot more economical to do a demo with a, with a drum uh, machine than to book studio time and bring in the whole band. And so they'd go in over a weekend and, and throw down a bunch of stuff, but it was all to this grid. And so Adam got used to, I think, a level of perfection that was higher and his own version of perfectionism started to ramp up whereas i was the kind of perfectionist that i just put a lot of pressure on myself to be the best version of me in, in every context and just that sort of level of um anxiety and 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 self uh just demanding a lot of myself he he started having these visions of perfection and and seeing the framework of what we were doing improving to where um he was comparing it now to like what was on top 40 radio not just like alternative rock and so when we went into the studio to make songs about jane that was those were the kind of comparisons that were being made now we wanted to make a record like michael jackson's thriller uh you know that had like eight hit songs on top 40 radio uh that every single track you could hear being a hit uh, and that every moment of every track that nothing sounded like it was sloppy or um you know just a band in the studio laying it down live and so there was this push and pull, whereas I had been the one that was always the one wanting things to be perfect, so to speak, you know, within the context of the looser thing that we were doing. Now, Adam was the one who wanted things to be perfect within that that pop world. And so, yeah, we had like the whole band. We did. We used to be the whole band in the tracking room playing the thing live. Now it was just me on the drums in the tracking room with the rest of the band and the and the producer and the engineer all standing behind the glass watching me go, you know, bar by bar and trying to get everything exactly on the grid. So that was another level of pressure. I already put enough pressure on myself, but now it was like when that red light would come on, it was like, oh my god, I have to perform to perfection. And if it if not, we're going to listen to it you know, over and over and over again and edit it within an inch of its life. Um, so that was, a, you know, it was, I didn't enjoy that process that first week of drum tracking on songs about Jane. Thankfully, um, the record label actually was on my side in terms of wanting to have more of the live performances, which we lost in that process a bit. So after we had done the other instruments and vocals, we actually went back and did another drum session where we set up the live drums again and I played live takes over the top uh, to try to recreate more of that feel and that looseness that comes from a live performance. And in my mind, and I think actually Adam would agree with this in, in, the, in retrospect, that some of those live performance performances kind of saved the, the vibe of the record. Because if you listen to songs about Jane start to finish, there are some tracks that sound very edited and very clipped in that way. Uh, the, of the first pass and then there are the other half which sound very loose and vibey and sound like a band in the studio playing live and I think it created a really interesting dynamic and a, and a more interesting listen as you go through the record um, because it's unique it, you don't you really hear a lot of records that have that balance between a very top 40 sound but then a very jazzy and rock and roll kind of vibe yeah absolutely do you think there's a musical gene? Is this a nature versus nurture? There was an argument you had with Adam about this. And also we should probably talk about your training because I think it's going to relate to the next part of the story. Yeah, I, you know, I think 
as a as a therapist now i look at everything as a combination of nature and nurture we have predispositions for things you know natural temperaments natural um inclinations or or talents um and then there's the way in which that manifests in the world and all the influences and and uh and contexts in which that either flourishes or gets squashed in some instances um i think without I would say that that probably by nature, I was born with some uh, rhythmic talent. I don't know. I mean, I, my my parents say that when I was like age three, I was dancing by myself to music at at a wedding. They saw me and they were like, he's right on the beat. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some innate rhythm in me, I suppose. Um, but, you know, music wasn't something that came naturally to me right off the bat in terms of melody and harmony and that kind of thing, even though there was a lot of music in my family and my dad was somebody who sang and wrote songs. My aunt was a Broadway star. Um, and so was a, a great singer. Um, and there was, there were musicians on both sides of my family. Is it in the blood or is it in the influence of growing up around it? Again, I think it's probably a combination of both having music around you when you're growing up it has a big impact on you. Um, but for me, it wasn't until I was about, 11, 12, and my older brother was playing the electric guitar. And I was inspired by that and, and found, you know, hard rock and that influence that it became a part of my soul. Uh, and so I think there was a big part of the the influence and the nurture element for me. But then I look at somebody like Adam, and, and he's kind of a savant, I think you couldn't deny being around him and watching the things that he's been able to do that there was natural talent there, a natural tone to his voice, a natural ear for melody and harmony without any training. I mean, I've, I've been astonished by Adam in a lot of different uh, contexts. And, and, and that's saying a lot because, you know, he's my little, my little idiot brother at, at the same time, you know, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm, I'd be the first one to, to say like, oh, yeah, uh, Adam, what's he good for? <laughs> but but no, I, I'm just like so impressed by him in so many ways from, from age 14 all the way up to now and seeing the things that he's able to do. Um, and, and so just a natural talent, which has been fostered over time with all the experience that he's had. But I remember going into the studio for, one of the first times, and as far as I know, he had never sung harmony or never taken any vocal lesson or anything. He took a little bit of uh, some guitar lessons, and he would go into the vocal booth, and the and the engineer would be like, "Well, you know, do you want to throw a harmony on that?" And he'd say, "Sure," and he would just sing a harmony. And I was like, "How do how did you pick out that harmony? Who who taught you that?" He's like, "I don't know. It just it just sounds right. It you just know? sounds right. What a, that that is innate talent. That yeah, is innate and, talent." But it was that age-old debate about that we, that Adam and I had that I did put in the book that was frustrating for me because because I was you know the hard worker and somebody who felt like we have to put in the the ten percent ten percent you know of inspiration goes with ninety percent of perspiration and Adam's argument was well yeah but you either have it or you don't um, it doesn't matter if you put hundred percent perspiration in if there's no natural talent nobody's going to care. Um, and I, I don't know, there's, you can, you can analyze that in a lot of ways, but I just found it a little of uh, self-serving at the time and, and was frustrated by it. Um, in retrospect, I think we were both right, you know, to a certain extent. Um, I think if you put in all the hard work that we did and you didn't have that natural talent and that natural chemistry that we had, I don't know that it goes where it goes. 
Um, at the same time, if you take all the talent in the world and you don't foster it and you don't put in the work, um, then, you know, I don't know where it goes either. And for Adam, it was when he, when, when Adam discovered his work ethic, that's when things really changed, you know, around the time of when we were making or writing songs about Jane, that's when his work ethic was really improving. And he was writing a lot more material. He was really working at his craft. And then he started thinking more about what kind of performer he wanted to be and how he wanted to take that onto a stage and, and, you know, present it to the world. So there was, um, you know, his, his biggest hero was, was Kobe Bryant, you know, who was, this incredible natural talent physically and what he could do with the basketball on the court. But it was when he, he discovered his work ethic and became this, you know, he had this sort of undying drive to be as good as he could be. That's when he be really became a champion. So I can see parallels there as much as I, I didn't want to see that at first. <laughs> yeah. Well, the story unfolds with this album going on to huge success, but it took a while. Some people call it a sleeper hit. And it sold, my notes here say, 10 million copies, the 10th best-selling album of 2004, two years after its initial release. Now, it went on to sell more than that over time. But that is a story in and of itself. Talk about the touring. What were the responsibilities of the band to promote the album? What that meant for you personally and for the band? Well, we toured for the first time in 97 on the Cars Flowers album. And that was about six months. And as I described earlier, it was that sink or swim. We went out there. Uh, we got whatever gigs we could for a while. They put the single out. It didn't really take off. And once the, the tours dried up, it was done. And there was no sort of big campaign to build a, a following. It was just uh, throw the dart at the wall and, and it didn't stick and we're done. Uh, so the next time around, we were very mindful of wanting to do it a different way, uh, of wanting to be more sort of um, in control of our own destiny. And thankfully, we found a record label, Octone Records, that was an upstart independent label that presented that very model to us. Uh, it was the best of both worlds in that they had distribution through a major corporation, the BMG Group, um, but they were this upstart label with just three guys at the helm. And they they saw in us a project that was not going to be easy to break, but would have legs, as they say in the industry, if they could break it. Um, and that was at a, after we had showcased at that point in that incarnation with the songs that became songs about Jane, we had showcased for every record label in the industry and they all passed on us, which is kind of amazing to think about now. But nobody had the vision to see that because we were unique, because we weren't exactly a rock band anymore, but we weren't fully a pop band or an R&B band, and that we were something unique in, in between all these influences, that that provided a unique opportunity to grow and find our own niche. So Octone had the vision, thankfully, that they wanted to put us on the road for at least a year. Um, and during that time, basically just build the, the first single in a grassroots way and build an audience in a grassroots way. Just going out and getting tours, find, you know, one, one tour at a time and one radio station at a time promote our first single. So we knew we were in for the long haul. And that sounded good to us, given our previous experience. Um, I was somebody that by nature, you know, I was a little bit reluctant to commit to the life of a touring musician for the rest of my life. I, I, 
I was an introvert. Um, I, I uh, kind of a homebody, and, you know, the long hours of being on the road and that lifestyle didn't really appeal to me. At the same time, having had a lot of fun in college with my buddies, I, I was okay with the idea of leaning into a couple years of my life of really giving this thing a go and getting out on the road and doing everything we could to see if we could have uh, some success. And so the first two years, uh, we played over 500 concerts in just those two years in O2 and O3. And uh, that doesn't include all the other promotional stuff that goes along with it. Um, you know, we were doing, we were rallying the troops, so to speak, going to local distrib distribution centers and, and playing acoustic shows for them, going to radio stations and, and bringing in our acoustic gear and playing on the, on the air, doing interviews, meet and greets, in stores, uh, back in the days when we, there were still record stores, you know, you'd go in yeah. and play a, an acoustic show. And then add on top of that, of course, driving ourselves around the country in a, in a passenger van uh, for all of that. And it was exhilarating and exciting uh, and exhausting, as you can imagine. Um, and the first six months, the record, the album wasn't even out yet. The single wasn't even out. We were just going around and trying to build a following one little tour at a time, sometimes playing a show, a one-off in Nebraska for, you know, uh, the bartender, basically, you know. Um, and then the, the single came out. Harder to Breathe was the first single. And we worked that single for a year. You know, and we we went around um, and the tours were getting bigger. You know, we started getting some bigger acts that we were opening for. And by the summer of 2003, um, we had a little bit of buzz. We were starting to sell some records. The album came out in, I think, the summer of 02. And by summer of 03, we were approaching a gold record. So it wasn't until a year and a half in and or a little bit more in the fall of 03 that we did our first like club headlining tour with a gold record under our belts and a moderate hit with harder to breathe. And you think, okay, wow, you've done all the hard work and great. And so by, but by the end of that headlining tour and the start of 04, we were now two years into promoting this album and really just getting started <laughs> because now it was the big time. Now the BMG group was taking over and the major promotion would start and all of the billboards and advertisements and the second single, this love, would be released internationally and major push at MTV and VH1 and every radio station across the globe. And within a matter of uh, weeks and months, we were playing on Saturday Night Live and The Tonight Show and The David Letterman Show and going to London and doing Top of the Pops on the BBC. And you can just imagine what a whirlwind that is. And when you're doing it, when you've already been on the road for two years, living that life and really kind of burnt out already. All of us, not just me, but me in particular, dealing with some of the things that I was dealing with. There's one particular story, I think it might've been the top of the pops in Britain that you talked about meeting you two backstage in the, in the green room area. And Bono said some advice to you and you guys all took it to heart, but you had already been doing it. Do you want to share that? Yeah, that was a, an, a lovely meeting and obviously one of our heroes and a great thing to to meet those guys. We were coming off stage from Top of the Pops, having just done one of the rehearsals, and Bono and Edge were coming out of their dressing room, which was right next to ours. And I had my girlfriend, Sean, with me, and she was walking with me. 
And Bono being the charismatic guy that he was, he's kind of scanned the, the, the six of us, you know, the five guys in the band and my girlfriend, Sean, and he, you know, made immediate eye contact with her. Very, she was very, you know, very cute girl. And, and he looks at her and he goes, Telecaster, right? <laughs> like, you know, she was the, she was the rhythm guitar player in the band, knowing full well that she wasn't, he was just flirting, <laughs> which was, you know, she blushed immediately, of course. And we all thought he was, you know, very charming. And, but, you know, we, we got into a conversation pretty quickly and I'm sure that they, they would do this with, with acts that they saw were on, on the way up. And it was very nice of them to give us a moment of their time and their, their infinite wisdom but they shared with us, you know, this is your first record that's going to break. There is breaking, you know, you, you're not going to get another one. Um, so this time around, say yes to everything, you know, whether it's, whether you just got back from Europe and they're asking you to fly to Australia and, and do, you know, a TV show there, just say yes, just do everything on this record that is offered to you because then you won't have to in the future. Um, but if you say no now, then they won't ask again. So it was great advice and advice we had heard from our record label and other, other sources that knew well that, um, you know, when, if you have a hit, you have, to, you have to establish your career in every way you can by saying yes and doing everything that's asked of you. Uh, but it was kind of funny because we were already two and a half years in at that point of saying yes to everything. We were on our last legs of ex exhaustion and burnout and we had to just kind of chuckle to ourselves like, okay, thanks, Bono. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yep, Jack, did that, done that, doing it. Thanks. For what comes next, which is what we're going to talk about and your transition, because you were in the eye of the Maroon 5 storm, as you've put it, from 2002 to 2006. You won a Grammy, the, the band won a Grammy Award in that time, which is an incredible honor. And that was what, 2004? I think it was best new artist at the 2005, which uh, was for the year 2004, which is ironic, even in and of itself, because it was two or three years into that album cycle and literally a decade into being a band. Yeah. So winning best new artist at that point in our career was kind of funny, but of course, an honor we were happy to receive. I watched the video clip of all of you receiving the award at the Grammys and you were seated near Kanye West. He was up for <laughs> some Grammy awards that year as well. And he was very gracious to all of you. And he, you know, you guys gave him hugs and then you went up to the stage and it just was a big moment. But back to this transition time for you, what started to happen with you and the band for you physically, emotionally, and with the band because of the, the toll that touring took on you in particular? Well, it's a complicated answer and it's uh, why it took me a whole book to, to, <laughs> to describe it. Because uh, honestly, as I was going through it, I didn't understand it. And it's taken me a lot of years of overcoming uh, some of those issues and reflection and some of even the experience I have as a mental health professional now to understand everything that went into what was essentially a nervous breakdown, um, which is not a clinical term or anything that anyone diagnosed me with, but it's a, to me, it's a, it's a term that, that best describes everything that happened because, uh, you know, going back, you know, I was that, that kid who was a little high strung. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform well and, and, and everything that I did. Um, 
and now you, we were in a context in, in which the internal pressure I was putting on myself was meeting up with a lot of external pressure, a lot of expectations, a lot of things that day in and day out, you had to be your, your most dynamic self. Um, and it wasn't just the pressure I put on myself. It was what we had a whole team, you know, that was uh, hinging on the success of this record and the success of our touring life and going on live TV and playing in front of millions of people. And, you know, um, that's, that's a lot it's to do once. It's another thing to do it day in and day out month after month and year after year. So I think it was in our first headlining tour in 03 that I started having um, physical symptoms, which at the time were disconcerting. And I had old pitching injuries and I, I chalked it up to that at first I had, pain in my right shoulder, which was that old uh, rotator cuff injury, um, you know, just inflammation and tendonitis. Um, but then something happened in, in that tour, which I, I couldn't understand then, which was, you know, my hand would start shaking after a gig, I couldn't sign my own name. Um, coordinating things became more difficult, you know, just it wasn't just the pain playing through the pain, I had to start contorting and changing my mechanics to try to get through a set um and not knowing what was going on and and being just like you know when i was age 13 in that game just like praying hoping hoping that maybe it'll go away and if i can just get through this and you know i won't ask for anything else um inside feeling like what's wrong with me you know why am i breaking down in this way why, why am i not able to keep up with this and and not having an outlet, not having a voice to talk about it, not communicating it to anyone, um, and wondering, is anyone noticing that I'm not playing as well? And knowing that the other guys in the band were starting to notice that things were uh, breaking down a little bit, um, I was just internalizing all of that. And so whereas I already put pressure on myself, I already had this sense of imposter syndrome, you know, um, I was a self-taught drummer. I was somebody who never took a lesson. And, and now I was playing, whereas it was, it was fine when we were a garage band and playing in clubs. Now we're playing with pop bands that have very polished musicians that were trained at, you know, Juilliard or we're at Ber Berkeley School of Music. And, and so I felt very self-conscious. And now I was actually having real problems keeping up and my body was kind of giving out on me. So I, it was just, it was kind of a downward spiral where the negative thoughts were reinforcing the physical problems. And then the physical, it was a feedback loop, you know, the physical problems. And then it, there was more negativity in my mind and ruminating on how this was all going to end. And so it just kept getting worse. And the physical issues got worse over time till some, at some point in 2004, I just like literally couldn't coordinate playing the drums anymore. And I had taken a couple breaks at a certain point where we had another drummer fill in for me but finally the band said to me you know go home uh go to a doctor go to 10 doctors figure out you know what's going on and how what's going to fix it uh, even if it takes six months and we'll be here when you get back which was a very gracious thing for them to say and I'm, I'm grateful that they gave me that time and uh space to try to figure out what was going on but it was also very disconcerting because I, I didn't understand what was going on. And it seemed to be bigger than anything that 
that than any any uh, explanation that anyone was giving me because I went to every kind of doctor and I went to several orthopedists who said I had chronic tendonitis and a lot of inflammation in the shoulder and I received a series of cortisone injections that didn't solve anything so I knew there was something more fundamental going on and I went to a, a neurologist who did a series of tests and said that diagnosed me with something called thoracic outlets as thoracic outlet syndrome uh, which is best I could understand it kind of like carpal tunnel syndrome of the whole arm um, that made sense to me because it, it's, it was a nerve issue and, and maybe that was affecting the coordination and but they just said basically you just have to wait for the inflammation to go down and wait for the the nerve to re-innervate um, and so it just became this waiting game and sitting around and not knowing how long it was going to take and still having that feeling inside of like, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Uh, there's something defective inside of me. And, and that just made me feel like a failure. And so my self-confidence was getting lower and lower, my self-esteem, uh, my belief and hope that I was going to be able to overcome this, uh, really just spiraling downward. And then now I'm sort of back home watching the band from afar. And this thing that I built over the course of a decade was at the highest level and it was inescapable. Um, you know, the, the remind the constant reminders of what it was I was missing out on at that point, you know, you turn on the TV and there was my band. You turn on the radio and there was my band. You drive down the street and there was a billboard advertising the show at the Staples center of my band, you know? And so even even just like going to the mall, you'd think, oh, I'm going to go to a movie and check out. It's like you'd you'd walk through the mall and our song was playing, you know. <laughs> so it was really difficult psychologically for me. And so it was the intersection of of the physical aspect, which was was painful and and disconcerting, with what this was doing to me emotionally and psychologically. And it was uh, a whirlwind that had been external and was now internal. Um, and just losing faith that I was going to be able to find a way out of it. You turned to alcohol because it helped numb the pain, yeah. maybe literally and, you know, emotionally. And you were in a really dark place. Did your bandmates know that? How deep it was, this chasm was for you? Did your family know? Um, I think yes and no. You know, the alcohol crept up on me and it got to the point where it was at its worst after I left the band, but it did start to become a problem during that time, in particular when I wasn't playing anymore. Um, and I had a lot of free time and really feeling sorry for myself and not really knowing how, what to do with all of that. I mean, I was going to therapy, I was going to a psychiatrist, and but it just seemed futile at that point to talk through the, the level of confusion and pain that I was experiencing. Um, and the the no part you know was that i i wasn't communicating with the people around me you know i as i was breaking down on the road it was kind of the elephant in the room i think everyone knew there was something wrong but we were guys in our 20s in 2004 or 5 where there wasn't really a public dialogue about mental health or about you know it's okay for a man to be vulnerable and uh to talk about you know the 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 things you're struggling with and so i wasn't I wasn't really keen to, you know, open up 
And on top of that, you know, I, did, I just didn't even have the level of self-awareness at that age to understand what was going on or to process the emotions in a healthy way. And I was hiding a lot of it from my family. I didn't want my family to be worried about me. And so, it, I mean, that made things worse, too, because it was isolating. You know, I was sitting alone with all of this stuff that was going on inside of me, and I really felt like nobody would understand. And so a lot of times the best way to cope with that was just to escape you know, to, to sort of tie one on with alcohol and, and sort of strap on this alter ego of this guy who didn't have a care in the world and pretend like it, I was this rock star just living the rock star life. And so I think externally people saw that and saw me kind of just going out and partying. And, um, you know, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time and I was just like dating a bunch of people or going out and, you know, picking up chicks and acting like the, the schmuck that you expect the guy <laughs> at that age to be rock star schmuck life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it was all fake. You know, it was, it yeah. was phony to me. That wasn't who I was. It was just, it was a way to escape. It was a way to, to try to build up my ego for a moment, um, and to, to nurse those wounds, uh, in a way that I didn't have to face the reality just for an evening. Um, and I think that that the the, the my bandmates when they were around me could see that that's what was going on. I think I think that it was clear to everyone that I was kind of spinning out and um and drowning. Um, but again, there wasn't really that open discourse, and it was just the elephant in the room. And I, I think that they didn't know how to talk to me any more than I knew how to talk to them. And so it was really just a really unfortunate situation that I don't think anyone really knew how to navigate it or what the best way through it was. It's not clear that there ever is one good way to do it. And I respect there was a story you shared in the book about the conversation that you had with the band about your transition. And you set the stage, you were in the Houdini mansion for recording sessions. And I think you described it like it's a whodunit crime scene <laughs> when you start out <laughs> talking about it. But this was the culmination of the realization that maybe it was time for you to move on. Do you want to share that story? Yeah, I, I, I painted that picture of that scene as the prologue to my book, Harder to Breathe, because, um, yeah, it was exactly that. I look at that moment as sort of the, the moment that my whole life changed. Uh, and it was everything that led up into that moment and everything afterwards. And if you look at it like a, like a, a murder scene, it's like, how did it come to that? And where did it go from there? Um, and it's not that it came out of nowhere, though. You know, it's not that I didn't probably in a large part of my mind see it coming. It's just that I was in so much denial and trying to escape the reality of it. And in that moment, I had to face the reality. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't live in denial anymore because my band called a meeting at the Houdini mansion, which was this beautiful old estate in Laurel Canyon here in, in, uh, in Hollywood. And um, we had been sort of holed up there working on material for the next album, the follow-up to songs about Jane. Um, and Matt Flynn, who's now the drummer in the band who had been my replacement on the road was there too. And he, he was playing and and I was trying to come and, and uh, re-enter the fray, but it wasn't really working out. And, you know, still sort of the elephant in the room until the band called a meeting in the uh, the dining room of the, of the Houdini mansion. And it was, you know, a very solemn occasion. Everyone seemed like they were walking into a funeral. Um, and I felt like I was walking into my own funeral because I knew I was coming. 
And it was just the moment in which I had to face it. And it was, this is not sustainable. You know, we have to make a record. And after that record, there's going to be a whole other world tour booked. And we're really worried that even if you can make it through this album somehow, um, the same thing's going to happen. And we're going to be scrambling, trying to figure out how to not cancel a world tour. Um, and so I'd like to say I handled it well, <laughs> but I was in, the, in a, the deepest, darkest hole of my life at that moment. I, I just like, I was desperate and I begged them, you know, to, to keep me on some other capacity to allow me to be just, you know, shake a tambourine or do something, you know, uh, be the sixth member of Maroon 5 or, or to, to stay on as the producer of the next album. And I thought I had enough experience in the studio to do that. And it was just a really uncomfortable conversation. And I, I think I walked out of that, that room completely dazed and out of it and, and not knowing what the rest of my life was going to be. It just felt like my entire sense of identity was just gone in an instant. It was, it had been my purpose in my, in my purpose in life that the, the source of all the meaning in my life, it was my entire social world. It was, you know, my best friends and my extended family and, um, and my, you know, my, my sense of self-worth, you know, how I had built up my sense of self. And so with all of that, just kind of, uh, pulled out from under me, I couldn't see how I was going to walk forward into the rest of my life with any, um, with anything other than just disappointment and, and, um, and pain. Um, and so after that, I did kind of dive headfirst into the alcohol for a while as a coping mechanism. If it had already been a problem, it became a real, real issue where I was isolating a lot more, um, drinking, you know, uh, going on benders really. And, um, and that lasted for a while and, until I went into the phase of, of alcoholism that I refer to in the book as the illusion of control which is where you tell yourself, okay, enough's enough. I just got to get my, my shit together um, and maybe learn how to drink like a gentleman and take a little bit better care of myself and, and start to learn how to move on with my life with a little more grace. And I was able to do that to a certain extent. I was able to sober myself up and, and you know, create a more presentable, presentable version of myself to my family and to my friends and show up to events looking like I was relatively clean and healthy and happy. Uh, but I was really just fooling myself. It was an illusion. You know, fooling myself with the rationalization that if I can stop for a time, or I can sober up for a time, or I can, I can, uh, you know, fool everyone else into thinking I'm doing all right, then I am all right. And that I have control over this thing. And that's kind of the life that I lived for some years there. Uh, in the meantime, like, you know, my life was just kind of stagnant because I, this, my entire identity had been wrapped up in this thing that was still a thing. You know, they were out there having hit records and, and selling out arenas. And I was living a simpler life, you know, working on music and writing and doing some producing and stuff. But everything that I did, I was comparing to them and not just what they were doing, which was so much more successful, obviously, but also just to the experience that I had had which had been so magical and had been so defining of me and my, and my inspiration in life um, that everything I did after just like, couldn't hold a candle to that. It was like, you know, once you've walked on the moon, how do you return back to walking on earth and not feel depressed? And so 
it was it was just a, a period in my life where I didn't have the tools to to move forward and find new meaning yet. Um, and I was just kind of wading through the anxiety and depression that was the aftermath of what I've come to understand as trauma. You know, it was very traumatic going through an extended breakdown on the world stage and seeing my my livelihood uh, slip out from under me and then having to deal with the loss of that and then going through all the, the cycles of self-medication um, and seeing my, you know, panic disorder creep up on me and becoming more agoraphobic and dealing with bouts of depression. Um, there was a lot of trauma to work through. And I was my only tool at that point was just to self-medicate. But it got to that point, as it always does, where it got worse and worse. And, and I got sick and tired of being sick and tired and finally was able to start walking in the other direction, um, which at first was terrifying. As any uh, addict will tell you, you know, you take those first steps towards sobriety and you have no idea what's in front of you or where it's going to take you or what it's going to take for you to to maintain sobriety. And uh, that's why they tell you just one day at a time. Right. But it was uh, it was it was something that I knew at that moment, if I kept walking in the direction I was going, um, it was just going to keep getting worse. And that my way of doing things was making it worse. Um, and so really, if I had any hope left in my soul, that life had something, you know, that, that was worth living for me, <laughs> that now is the time to start walking in the other direction. And that, it, it, you know, um, I, there was something inside me that, that wanted to walk back towards life, towards connection, towards finding meaning in my existence again. Not that I understood these concepts at that moment in my life and being so spiritually broken down, uh, but it was pretty early on in my recovery that I, I did start to have that sort of spiritual awakening and rediscover purpose in my life. You had a very powerful quote in the book, which is nobody tells you it's the good old days when you're living them. And absolutely, as you shared your story, Ryan, which thank you for going to that level of authentic detail. It's quite remarkable to hear how you how you reflect on your experience, because now you have the benefit of hindsight, but I can only imagine the pain that you felt at that time. And everything you're saying about identity, I'm sure there's regrets wrapped up in there too. And you were a young man and you had a whole life ahead of you. And I'm so glad that you recognized that you you could find that passion again, and you could find that hope and that you could find that purpose. And you checked yourself in to a recovery center. I know it was short-lived, and then you went end up going to a second recovery center. And that's where you really got started on your path and your journey. I did see in a few of your interviews, many people do ask you the question, you know, what would you do differently? And one of the interviews you talked about the power of mindfulness. Do you believe that mindfulness is something that really is so centered in your recovery and staying on the path that you are now today? Yes. However, when I started it, uh, it was very difficult for me. You know, we, I was at the Betty Ford Center when I finally got clean and we had a whole program, you know, your whole day is kind of mapped out for you. And we had groups and we had AA meetings and we had exercise and, and uh, you know, we had self-care and we had 
individual therapy and uh, a lot of different modalities. Um, the thing that was hardest for me in all of that was meditation. You know, we had this spiritual guide who would, who would, we'd get in a circle and we'd meditate. And I realized that the hardest thing in the world for me was just to sit still and be present in my body. Uh, focusing on my breathing would, would cause me to hyperventilate. <laughs> you know, it was just all of the anxiety and the things and the thoughts and the emotions that I had spent so much time and energy trying to push away and, and tried to do everything in my power not to sit in the present moment, to escape it in any way possible. And so mindfulness, the reason why it's so powerful for me and can be for, I think, for a lot of people is that it is, it is the tool that allows you to sit in the present moment. It's a practice and it, and it, and you do it with a beginner's mind. You do it without self-judgment or criticism. You do it with the expectation that things will arise, that thoughts will come, um, that you're not trying to change anything that's happening. You're just trying to sit in the present moment more fully and exercise radical acceptance of whatever is occurring. And the reality is that most things that are occurring in the present moment aren't as scary as what we project onto it, right? A lot of times the reason why we end up so stressed out or anxious or depressed is because of the things that we're putting on the present moment, not what's actually happening. So when you cultivate that practice, when you get to a place where you can sit in the present moment and actually see what's happening without judgment or changing it or, um, or you know, imposing all of our own neuroses onto it, um, it's not as terrifying as we think it's going to be. And we have a greater uh, resilience and ability to accept uh, what's going on and, and find serenity in it. And that's the ultimate goal. Um, I think because I had had such high highs in my life and was comparing everything to that, I was running from the lows and expecting the high highs. And that's the life of an addict, right? You end up having a lot more lows than highs when you're deep into your addiction. And when you're in recovery, what you, you, you learn is that serenity is really the goal, finding contentment, finding a place where you feel comfortable in your own skin. Um, and that's more sustainable than the high highs. And when you're in that place, life is just much more pleasant in general, but then you actually have access to the high highs again. When you're living the life of, of extremes, as I was for a while there, um, you end up living in those lows and you don't really even have access to the highs anymore. You're just trying to get up to the middle, really, right? Uh, when you're in the middle, most of the time, that can feel boring because you don't have the, the extreme you know, dynamics of between the high and the low. It can feel mundane at first and it, that's a hard thing to get used to. But once you find the appreciation for serenity and and for uh, you know the the mindful approach to living, then you actually notice that there are natural highs that come. You know, you're in the present moment. You're able to be fully present with with other people in your life, with the things that you take meaning from, and then all of a sudden you'll get that glow and you'll realize, oh wow, this wasn't accessible to me a few years ago, because I was so I was so wrapped up in my own bullshit <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I couldn't even recognize, you know, a good thing when it was sitting in front of me. And now I can. And that's been the difference maker for me in recovery more than anything is that, you know, if opportunities came along 10 years ago, 
I wouldn't have even, you know, recognized them, let alone had the wherewithal to go after them and make something of them. And now being in a, in a much more grounded place, I see opportunities arise all the time. And, and I see them and I get excited and I say, oh, I want to walk forward into that. And I know what to do with it, even if it's a little scary, even if it causes some anxiety. Uh, I'm like, well, nothing scarier than, than walking out of my addiction into, into sobriety for the first time. If I can do that, I can walk into this. And as long as I'm just taking that mindful approach of just acceptance and sitting in the present moment, it's not going to be as scary as I might think it is. And so in doing that, you know, a lot of people in recovery, you meet people in AA, and I don't disagree with them, but they'll tell you, you know, the God or the universe loves a sober person. And they'll, as long as you stay on that path, you know, God will reward you. Um, I, don't, I, I wouldn't correct someone and say that that's not the way that the universe works. Um, however, my belief is essentially that when you're in that position, you're ready to accept those gifts. You're ready to, and you know what to do with them, right? And so that's what it's been for me. And I have been rewarded because each step of the way, as I've walked into a new opportunity, um, I've been able to recognize it. I've known what to do with it. And then it leads me to another opportunity and another opportunity. And now I'm doing things that I couldn't have possibly imagined I would have been doing seven years ago when I got clean, uh, just following that impulse and just following that feeling that's been the inspiration and the source of contentment and ultimately fulfillment. Um, so here I am. It's beautiful. No, it's beautiful. And it's like the universal magnet that something is pulling you. There's a force that's pulling you forward and you're embracing it and you're exploring and you're open to it, which is amazing. Why don't you share with me what you are doing today? You've got your master's in clinical psychology. There's not a lot of rock stars that went to college and, and probably even fewer, uh, probably a percent of a percent have gotten a master's degree. So congratulations <laughs> to you for that achievement. But yeah, talk about what you do now. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I was very lucky to have found a window there to get my bachelor's degree when I was in the band. It was right in that moment in between the Cars Flowers album and the Maroon 5 album uh, that I was back at UCLA and able to get a uh, an English degree. I didn't think that I would do anything with that degree because I thought I was just going to go off and be a rock star and that would be it. Um, thankfully, when I was in early recovery, I um, I was volunteering at a recovery center, um, an intensive outpatient program. And uh, what I was doing there, I was just a, a peer support and I was co-leading groups. And I was just kind of talking about my story and offering some of the things that I'd learned. Um, and I volunteered there for about two years. And in that time, that was like the most meaningful thing that I was doing in my life or had been doing in my life for a long time. And it also gave me a lot of confidence that I had been lacking because I was speaking in groups and I felt that I had something to offer uh, other human beings in a helpful way. And that kind of built my self-esteem back up. Um, but also I was getting a lot of positive feedback. There were people telling me, hey, you, you do a really good job of articulating, you know, the ideas of recovery. And uh, I feel you know, like you're a really good listener, you you listen to me when I'm talking, and you offer some really good feedback, and you have a knack for this kind of thing. Have you thought about going back to school and doing this professionally? And honestly, I, I hadn't at that point. But then I realized, wow, if this is this fulfilling to me doing this, and I'm getting such positive feedback, then I'd be a fool 
not to see that opportunity and, and walk forward into it. So I just like didn't even hesitate. I I just started going online and looking for places I could apply uh, that I could um, go out and get a master's degree and, and become a therapist. Um, and thankfully, I got accepted to Pepperdine. I didn't know if that would be easy with an English degree, but uh, I was able to. And um, yeah, it took me a few years to get my master's in clinical psychology. And I figured I was going to go work at a recovery center. But my horizons just keep getting you know, expanded upon. And, and I saw new opportunities. I was like, okay, I'm going to be a therapist. I don't know what kind of therapist yet. Right out of school, I got offered a job and started working at a, a clinic for anxiety, an IOP for anxiety. And, um, and in the course of getting my master's degree, I also had to do a lot of self-reflection, a lot of papers, you know, um, both case studies on other people and on myself, because you have to be pretty self-aware in order to become a therapist. Um, and I rediscovered my passion for writing in doing that and realized, hey, I have a story to tell now that has a happy ending. And given my background and the platform that I, I might have because of that and the education that I'm gaining um, in my master's degree and in becoming a therapist and in my own personal experience with a lot of these things, um, I could probably offer some things that might be helpful to people that could see themselves in my struggles. So I just started writing down my story while I was still in grad school. And it, after I graduated, I started this new job. Um, I got a publishing deal for my book. Uh, I started as, as when the book came out and I started promoting it, I started doing speaking engagements um, and, uh, you know, just became an advocate um, online and, and in speaking engagements for mental health. And um, it kind of brought me back into the music world, talking in, in that uh, arena again. And so now um, I find myself in a place where I'm a therapist, um, I'm a mental health advocate, um, I'm a speaker and a coach, uh, I'm an author. I've written a, a, a column for Variety Magazine and I'm doing some other writing. You know, the sky's the limit for me. I, whatever comes next is going to be something that feels fulfilling and that I'm passionate about. And if it's not that, then, you know, why would I do it? You know, so it's it's really all about uh, putting myself in those places that really fill me up and give me that sense of meaning and purpose again, which is what I had been lacking for so long after I left the band until I realized that it, you know, meaning and purpose is not something that comes and bonks you on the head. It comes from investing yourself in something and creating it, creating that purpose for yourself. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's different for each person. And you can go back to the argument we were having earlier about, is it, are you born with it? Or is it something that comes from the, you know, the context of your life? And it might be a combination of both. You know, you have your natural inclinations and then you have the, the situations that life presents you that might lead to something really meaningful that you hadn't even foreseen. And it's been both for me. It's been a combination of both. And um, I like the fact that I'm doing something different now in my 40s than I was in my 20s. And I, I find it exciting to think I might be doing something different when I'm in my 60s that I can't even foresee now. That's what keeps life interesting. Well, cheers to that. And cheers to all the transitions that you've successfully navigated, because there's many more to come, I'm sure, as we all live on life's journey and trying to figure out what's next for us. Your story is so powerful and so helpful. 
not only to people in the creative arts, I know you you speak at different events that are, as you said, you know, music uh, and performance oriented. And I think I read somewhere that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek that, of course, you're doing marriage therapy. So are you going to do couples therapy for band partners? <laughs> you could probably <laughs> do couples therapy for business partners. It's a healthy thing to do. And it doesn't get talked about enough. And when you and I first met and we talked off air about why I thought your story would be so beneficial to the Succession Stories listeners is because there is absolutely an emotional fallout that people feel when they sell their business or they leave their company that they've started or if they've been part of it for generations and they're no longer part of it. There's an identity. There's something so powerful with that. And when there's a transition that we're maybe we're not ready for it or we don't really want it that's the the mind body spirit is is misaligned and what happens there and many business owners regardless of age do experience depression and they'll go into very dark places there's one example with Marcus Persson Swedish inventor of Minecraft when he sold his company he started to put a lot of tweets out there and so people were reading publicly what he was saying and he was saying I've never felt more isolated and he had 2.5 billion in his bank account so it wasn't about the money and it can take a period of years for people to adjust and get back in a flow after selling their business. And I want people to listen to your story and really take it to heart that even if we're in the highest of highs and you experience the lowest of lows, you can come back to that middle ground, which is where you found yourself around Ryan and in such a very strong, confident, powerful place and how you're helping other people and you're really inspiring people with your story. And I just wanted to thank you so much for all of your time with me today. We've, this is my longest interview. You're so gracious. I just could talk to you for hours. Your story is fascinating. So I just want to wrap up. I know you have to go. I do ask everyone if they have a favorite quote, and I'm going to share one from your book, <laughs> but I'll ask you if you have one that something comes to mind. Uh, a quote from my book or a quote from somebody else? Whatever you want to share, whatever inspires you. Oh, wow kind of put on the spot. <laughs> I wish well, I'll looking. give you, I'll feed you one. I'll okay. feed you one. You talked about this too shall pass. Right. And it's only four words, but isn't that a powerful phrase? Yes. And you know, you, it's the best moments in life. We wish they could last forever, but they don't. But that there's a, there's a happy thing that comes with that, which means that the worst parts in life, they also don't last forever. And that's a really important, powerful thing to remember, because it's hard to see that when you're in the depths of something as painful as I was, uh, to recognize this too shall pass. You know, uh, that's the nature of life. It's, you know, it, everything passes in time. And it's, it's only with the knowledge of that that we're able to get through the hardest moments of our life, right? So yeah, I, that's something I find myself saying to myself a lot. Uh, if I'm in a moment of, of crisis, mini crisis or anxiety or whatever, this too shall pass. Uh, I find myself saying it to my clients a lot uh, to remind them because we're all guilty of that, right? In, in the midst of something, not being able to recognize that um, it's transitory. You know, the things, the things that, that, are, uh, that are challenging to us are, are a moment in time, just like every other moment in our life. Yeah, absolutely. The other piece that I took from your book is when you make a commitment to let go and start to change the things you can, significant growth and change do begin. 
So you absolutely have told your story in that fashion, and I can see why you you wrote those words. I want to encourage everyone to get the book Harder to Breathe, and for no other reason than this amazing story that Ryan lays out. But there's some really cool photos that he has in the in the middle of the book, and I loved seeing all those old photos. And there's a poem that you wrote at the end, and I'm not going to read it. I want everyone to go get that, get their copy of the book and read the poem, beautiful poem that you wrote at the very last page. So that is something that we deserve to read and everyone needs to read it. Ryan, if people want to learn more about you and get in touch, what's a good way to do that? Well, I have a website, ryandusick.com, which has, uh, you know, everything that I'm doing uh, hopefully on there and a way to reach out to me if you're looking, you know, as a, as a therapist, as a coach, as a speaker, that's the way you can find me. Um, and then my Instagram page is kind of the fun uh, extension of that with the videos that I, I post both of old stuff of the band and all the stuff I'm doing now, speaking gigs and other, other ways of uh, reaching out to people. Uh, it's at Ryan Michael Dusick is my tag on Instagram. Perfect. Perfect. Ryan, sincerely, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Laurie. I appreciate it. To our listeners, be sure to follow Succession Stories in your favorite podcast player and on YouTube and leave us a review. To learn more about maximizing the value of your business and planning for transition, sign up for our newsletter and book a complimentary call with me at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. Join us next time on Succession Stories for more insights from transition to transaction. I hope that today's episode resonated with you. What actions will you take as a result? If you want to grow, sell, or transition your business, our strategic transition planning process provides clarity and objectivity on the big questions that may be weighing on your mind. Make an intention and take the next step. Set up a complimentary consultation with me to discuss your goals at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. That's thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. 